Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded few in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, College for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, July 6th, we're studying Psalm 19. In today's text, King David extols the glory of God that is seen in creation, and he rejoices in the word of the Lord that is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor William Turgeson. Pastor Turgeson serves at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. Pastor Turgeson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be with you, Tim. So we get started today, Pastor. Tell us a little bit about the Psalms in general. There's not the same sort of context when it comes to the Psalms individually as perhaps in other sections of Scripture. So, so we prepare to look at a Psalm today, Psalm 19 in particular. What do we need to know about the Psalms and anything that'll help us to understand what we're going to read today? One of the things that I've been uh, studying about and thinking about lately about the Psalms in general is that they perform kind of two functions. First of all, uh, they are God's word to us, right? And so we read the Psalms and use the Psalms to hear what God says uh, and says to us and for us. But then at the same time, we use the Psalms in our prayers and worship. And therefore, the Psalms also function as our words to God. Uh, and when you look at our liturgies, you can see that uh, much of our liturgies is composed of snippets of the book of Psalms. So we are saying back to God what he has said to us, and that's called the confession of faith. Uh, and, and so one of the things that, uh, that has been very meaningful for me in recent times is understanding that twofold sense of the Psalms, God's word to us, and then we saying back to God what he has said to us. I think that the Psalms particularly functioning in that way and seeing them as the prayers of the saints, particularly King David as we have it today, that really helps open up the rest of scripture similarly. Although not every section of scripture is composed as a part of a prayer. Some parts are narrative. You have other genres within the scriptures. I think seeing the way that the Psalms functions very particular in that way does help open up those other sections of scripture for that same purpose, so that we do begin to not only use the scriptures and, and hear them as God's word to us, but we also begin to pray from them. I think when we see the Psalms doing that, it helps us in other parts of the scriptures to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, Pastor Turgeson, is there anything else in terms of the context of Psalm 19, any historical background that we should know? It doesn't look like there's a whole lot within the superscript, but is there anything in particular that we need to know as we look at these words in particular? Well, 
I, I think that uh, this is one of those psalms that seems to be written for use in the corporate worship of Israel. All right, so David is writing this song not because he is particularly struggling with a, 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 uh, a tough time in his life. He's not being, he doesn't seem to mention his foes, those who persecute him and speak evil of him, those who are trying to undo him. Uh, he's, he's not doing that, but what he seems to be doing is giving us a meditation on God's revelation of himself. And so the psalm kind of breaks into two halves, the first half being about natural revelation, and the second half being about uh, divine revelation or inscripture re revelation. So this is one that's probably not going to find any particular place within you know, an incident in David's life that you're going to read about in First or Second Samuel, but more likely something that he seems to have composed for use in the worship life of the church. And I, I know that the, the services that happened at the temple were not precisely the same as what we do in the divine service, but just based on the content of this psalm, it seems like it would function pretty well as a, a sermon hymn, something that you would sing right before you hear the Word of God. Yes. Yeah. And, All and right. So, Good. And, and as, as we move on, Good. you know, we'll see the different way that this psalm is used, both as a... a both of them used as a celebration of God's revealing himself to us. Uh, Luther does some things with it and uh, that are surprising. And then, you know, most commentators go in another direction. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the text here. This is Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 19. So, Pat, Pastor Turgeson, again, help us with the, the structure of this psalm. I think you mentioned there's two basic parts to this psalm. How does this psalm break down structure-wise? All right, the first six verses deal, <clears throat> on, on one level, it deals with 
natural revelation. That is that uh, that God reveals Himself and is is speaking to us through what He has made. Uh, we call that natural revelation or the natural knowledge of God, and uh, and then uh, and and that is is split up into two parts. Number one, he celebrates this natural knowledge of God, and then he uses the sun and what it does every day, and that we can see it, and it affects us all, as an example of this. Then the second half of the psalm begins in verse 7, where he uses a number of different words to describe the written Word of God, the inspired revelation of God, and he is celebrating what this Word does and, and, and how it acts upon us. And then he speaks of the value of it and the right use of it. And then finally, in the last few verses, he cannot help, as he considers the wonder of God's Word and the perfection of it, he cannot help but notice his own failings and his own need for mercy and forgiveness. And so the psalm ends with a kind of a humble, penitent, and yet confident trust in God's mercy. And so that's basically the structure. All right, yeah, it breaks down pretty easily there, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 11, and then probably 12 through 14, something like that. Give us those three parts. So let's talk about the section that deals with natural revelation. And as you said, even this, you can think about in two sections. You've got natural revelation as a whole, and then particularly what he says about the sun. Let's just start with that very first verse. I think this is a reasonably well-known verse from the Psalter. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Take us into that very first verse of the psalm. So the heavens, that is the, the universe, the, the sky above us, the planets, the stars, etc. The heavens are declaring, they are communicating something to us, that there is a God. And also, the second half of that parallelism there is, the firmament shows his handiwork, so that when we look up, at the sky and we see the sun, we see the stars, we see all, all that stuff up there. Uh, what we are, what is being shown to us is that there is a maker of all these things and that, that God is the one who is responsible for the existence of it all and therefore that presence of all these things is a proclamation of, of God's handiwork and of his glory. So you've talked about this as natural revelation or natural knowledge of God. Talk a little bit more mm -hmm. about that, and especially how that is something that should be seen by all people, regardless of whether they're Christian or not at the time. This is something that's available for anyone and everyone to see. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. The, you know, this is what the heavens are doing. This is what the firmament is proclaiming. The fact that people do not see it, that they do not realize it, or that they reject it, is not because 
God is not doing this through his creation, but because they will not have it. You know, the Bible tells us over and over again that uh, the light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness rather than light, lest their deeds be reproved. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, after, after speaking about justification by grace through faith, he says this, he says, What may be known of God, this is in verse 19 of Romans 1, what may be known of God is manifest in them, that is, it is obvious to them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and divinity, so that they are without excuse. So here, what Paul is saying about natural revelation is that God is and has been and always is speaking, and that, that people, because of their sins, they refuse to hear it as the voice of God, and they interpret it either in an idolatrous pagan way, or they interpret it uh, as a kind of subtle pagan way, that is the way of uh, secularism and materialism. So, but, but what Paul is saying, the thing is that what may be known of God is manifest. It's obvious. There it is. For God has shown it. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by what is made. So, from natural creation, uh, from natural revelation, we know that there is a God. We know that he is all-powerful. We know that he is wise. We know that he is good. And we know that we owe him because we are his creatures. But natural revelation does not lead us to the gospel. We do, not, we do not perceive the gospel from studying nature, right? There's, uh, for that, we need, the, we need the Word of God revealed. Uh, and, uh, and so here, chiefly, it's a ministry of the law to know there is a God. He is all-powerful. He made everything. We are all dependent upon him, whether we like it or not. And... Uh, and and he is good and we are not all right paul yeah. also paul also in in the second chapter of uh, romans he continues in the same thing because not only the heavens declare the glory of god and the firmament shows his handiwork but also uh our conscience and he says in uh, in chapter 2 verse 14 he says when the gentiles that is the heathen when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the word of God, they by nature do the things in the law. These, although having not the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and 
between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So what Paul is saying here is the fact that we all have a conscience, or at least most people have a conscience, right? Uh, the fact that we have a conscience also <laughs> is part of the natural revelation of God. God's, God speaks to us naturally through the fact that we, he, his law is written in our hearts. We have consciences and we realize that though he is holy, we have sinned, right? And so, so uh, that's what Paul has to say about the natural knowledge of God, uh, commenting really on this first part of Psalm 19. Yeah, and I really appreciate the way that you, you brought out that this natural revelation that we're hearing about here in Psalm 19 really is a ministry of the law, that we do see the fact that God exists, but we do not yet know him as the God who loves us, as we learn about in his word, in his scripture. And so it, it is good for us to keep that in mind when we speak this way to our friends and neighbors who may not believe, even from seeing the world around them, that God exists. It's good that we keep that in mind, that this is the ministry of the law, we can and we should speak this way about God at, and point to the reality that God exists from creation. But we also want to make sure that we don't leave it only with that. And we do take the, our Christian witness into the scriptures where we learn who this God is fully and we see his love in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. All right. So we, we've you know, got this. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I remember when I was a young pastor, a guy telling me how much he appreciated nature and that no, there was nothing better than going out early on a Sunday morning and playing a round of golf. And he says, that's where I do my best communing with the Lord. And at the time, being a young pastor, wet, still wet behind the ears, I just went, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, okay. You know, now, now that I'm an old and wizened pastor, I might have challenged what he said a little bit more and told him that all you learn from Nature is the law, and the law condemns us. That's right. That's right. We need that revelation of God very specifically given in the Holy Scripture so that we know who he is and how he's loved us in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is where Dave is going to take us within this psalm. So verse 1 really sets out that theme. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then David continues into verses 2 and following, speaking about their speech what they reveal in terms of knowledge, who hears this. Take us into the, the next couple of verses of this first section. So he says, day unto day utter speech. So it's always happening. This natural revelation from God is always happening. Night unto night uh, reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now that's a little bit tricky in the original Hebrew. Uh, and so... Uh, so every attempt to translate that verse is a bit of an educated guess. But I'll go with uh, the New King James Version here. There is no speech nor language where their word is not heard. So everybody has heard it. Everybody has experienced it. And then in verse 4, their line or their, um, what's the other word for that is uh, sound? Their, their sound yeah. Yeah. has gone out through all the earth and their words unto the end of the world. Now, this particular, this particular verse is interesting because Paul uses it in Romans chapter 10. 
right? If uh, if we go for a moment to Romans chapter 10, where uh, where the uh, where it says in verse 17, chapter Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then he says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Right? And so here he's quoting this passage from Psalm 19, verse 4, and but he's using it, he's using it in connection with the preaching of the gospel going out into the world. And I think this is where this is where Luther grabs hold, because when Luther comments on this psalm, he treats the entire section on natural revelation from verses 1 through 6, he treats it as a prophecy of the worldwide preaching of the gospel to all creatures everywhere. And so here, Luther likens the everywhere present, everywhere active, everywhere spoken and heard revelation of God in nature, and he likens it to the universal proclamation of the gospel uh, in the New Testament. Hmm. So, and I think you mentioned that that's not generally the way that most modern commentators are going to take this psalm, but I, I think the right. way that, that Paul uses this verse in Romans 10 I think, gives us some license to do that. And even just looking at Psalm 19 as a whole, I do think David wants us to make connections between the universal proclamation that happens by the heavens declaring the glory of God and the way that the sun particularly functions within that. I, I think, I mean, he's, he's kind of drawing us along that same kind of idea when he finally does get to the word of God particularly in verses seven and following, that he's, I, I see David moving in that same direction that it seems Paul takes it and Luther takes it as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, it's important for us theologically to understand that, that the psalm is dealing with natural revelation in the first half, but natural revelation is only a precursor to the 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 divine revelation of God through His Word, you know, and uh, so Luther. What Luther does is he really jumps on that, and he interprets the entire passage in in accordance with uh, the universal proclamation of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, as as we think about the the passage about the Son. He says he sent a tabernacle for the sun. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And there we have New Testament passages like John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and in verse 29, John the Baptist says, A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. All right? Uh, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this my joy is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. So number number of times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. When his disciples ask him, how come you don't make us fast? Like John's disciples and the Pharisees. And he says, can can the children of the bride chamber fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? The, co- the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then, then they will fast, right? And so Jesus is the bridegroom who comes to claim his church, right? And that is connected to this passage where the son is like a bridegroom coming out of his chambers and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. In verse 6, its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing that is hidden from its heat. So the sun affects everything and everyone, and you can't avoid it and you can't not see it right? The sun, and now in Luther's understanding of this passage, what he's doing is saying, this is the impact of Christ and the gospel in the world. The finished work of redemption and atonement and the proclamation of that in all the world, it is a universal invitation to forgiveness, life, and salvation. And uh, one more connection, I think, that we need to make is in the book of Malachi, chapter 4. In Malachi, chapter 4, Malachi writes this, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. All right, so here, the time of rejoicing will come when the Son of Righteousness, that S-U-N, Son of Righteousness arises with healing in his wings. That's a messianic reference in the book of Malachi, and it's kind of connected right up to this passage about natural revelation and how the Son shines and proclaims the glory of God. Yeah, fantastic connections to Christ here in Psalm 19. We're going to keep looking at these connections and more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor William Turgeson about Psalm 19 this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 6th. We're studying Psalm 19 with Pastor William Turgeson. He serves at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. Pastor Turgeson, prior to the break, we were looking at the way David speaks about the sun as it runs its course through the sky. And you were making the note of the way Luther connects this to the preaching of the gospel. And the way that David speaks in verse 6, especially from one end of the heaven to the next, nothing is hidden from its heat, this universality. Maybe we should consider passages where Jesus talks about the way that his gospel will be preached throughout the world. Yeah, and if we if we go quickly to Matthew 28, <coughs> verse, uh, well, beginning at verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So here, Jesus commissions his church to go into all the world with the proclamation of the gospel and baptize and disciple people. And, and so the sun shines and nobody can avoid the rays of the sun. Uh, it, it goes from east to west and it's no, nothing is hidden from its heat. And so it is that the gospel is for all nations, for all people. This is echoed uh, in Mark chapter 16, where St. Mark says, go in, well, Jesus is quoted here as saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And so here we have two uh, mentions of the great commission to bring the gospel to every creature, just like Natural revelation speaks, though it speaks the word of the law, it speaks to every creature. Now, Pastor Churchson, David then makes the move from natural revelation to specific or scriptural revelation in verse 7. And he starts like this, the law, at least as the ESV translates it, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And we can very easily see the poetry that's inherent in these next several verses. David's going to use very uh, different, or not different, he's going to use interchangeable terms and words that add to what we are understanding when it comes to the word that we're talking about here. But maybe to start, though, the law of the Lord. When we hear the word law as Lutherans, we often hear it and think in contradistinction to the gospel. So the law, that's the commands of God. The gospel, those are the promises of God. Here in Psalm 19 and many places in the Psalms and in the entire Old Testament, the word law functions a little more generally or broadly than that. Talk about the law of the Lord as we see it here in verse 7 of Psalm 19. The, the word in Hebrew is Torah. Most people have heard that word. And Torah literally means instruction or doctrine. It's, it's just like in our, in our Missouri Synod history, the word doctrine is a very key idea. We want to be teachers of sound doctrine, right? And that's really what the word Torah means. So when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul or reviving the soul, 
It's talking about God's word. It's talking about the doctrine of God, what God has taught us through the Holy Scriptures. So it it's certainly includes law in the sense of command, but it is broader than that. We're talking about the word of God here. So with that in, in mind, as we see the parallelism working through these next several verses, help us to see some of the details. So let's start with the first part of verse 7. The law, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What are we learning there? So God's word is perfect. That's one thing we we say as, as Missouri St. Lutherans that the scripture is the infallible, the inerrant word of God. And that's what this verse is saying is that God's word, God's revelation, his scriptures are perfect. And not only are they perfect, but they do something. All right. They have a they have a saving impact on the soul. Uh, the law brings us to a knowledge of our sins so that we can hear the good news as what it is, the good news. And, and, the, and, and the word of God is both law and gospel, and each of these has to do its proper work in us. But the chief work of God is to, is to give us his salvation through faith in Christ, the Savior of the world. And so the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul doesn't mean that God's commandments convert the soul, but it means that God's word, uh, in particular, the gospel, is what converts the soul. Now, in the second half of verse 7, we see that parallelism at work. So now it's not the law of the Lord. We've got the testimony of the Lord. It's described as sure. And then what does it do? It makes wise the simple. Help, help us to see how David's just building here. Okay, so this is another synonym for God's written, written word. Uh, testimony. Here, the very same thing that's talked about in the first half of the verse, the word of God, is talked about as a testimony. That is, God in the scriptures is testifying to us. All right, in, in, the, in part A, God is revealing himself to us, his doctrine, he's teaching us. In the second part, he's testifying to us, and his testimony is reliable. It's, it, it stands up in court, if you will, and, and therefore those who make use of it are made wise, even though they are simple, they are made wise because God's testimony is sure. All right, in verse 8 then, we have more parallelism. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How does this add to our understanding of what God's word is and does? All right, so, so you have the law of the Lord or God's doctrine. You have the testimony, God is testifying. Now the, uh, the statutes or the precepts of the Lord, and this gets into uh, the details. You know, the, the doctrine of the Lord, that's a general concept. The testimony of the Lord is a little bit more specific. And now the, the statutes or the uh, precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so what we're doing is we're getting more and more focused on the details as we go along. 
you know, some people are very, they're, they're very okay with the idea that somehow in general, God's word is inspired and that God's word uh, accomplishes things in a kind of a general way. But they get a little bit uncomfortable when you get too much into the specifics. You know, we like God to stay vague. You know, this is, this is human nature. God's okay as long as he stays vague, as long as he stays generic. But when he gets particular, that's when we start getting nervous. And so here, David tells us that the precepts of the Lord, right down line upon line, you know, that the, the word of God is efficacious and brings anyway. joy, even when we study it right down to the, the fine details. Yeah, and, and that brings us joy, it brings joy to our heart. And I, I think that's, yep. that's a very good insight that, yeah, we, when God's being general with us, we're, we're okay with that usually. When we know that God speaks against greed, that, okay, we can, we can get, get, get him behind that. But then if that means something like I have to give stuff away or have to give money away, well, I'm not sure that I care for that precept so much here. But, but David teaches mm -hmm. us, and the Lord teaches us to pray with great joy at even those details, those precepts of the Lord, because they are right and bring our hearts joy. The second part of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Give us more, more of what the Word of God is here. Okay, so commandment, of course, we know what that is, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments in the Bible. So these are the very... This is what we would call the law proper, all right? The commandments of the Lord. And what it says about the commandments of the Lord is that they are pure. Uh, and that means, at the very least, that they are right and that they enlighten the eyes. We like to think that we have gotten beyond uh, God's Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are so yesterday, right? And... Uh, we like to think that we in the modern world with our advanced knowledge about things have gotten beyond it. But what it says here is that God's commandments are pure and that as we use them, God is using them to enlighten our eyes. And what it enlightens us to, the commandments of God, first of all, enlighten us to what God's will is and what it isn't. Secondly, it enlightens us to the fact that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is a most necessary and helpful uh, thing to have, uh, to, to be enlightened about, that we are sinners and we cannot do anything to save ourselves. This makes us ready to hear the good news of salvation in Christ. So the commandment of the Lord is pure, it is right, it is true, and it enlightens us. It shows us God's will and what's not God's will, and it shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. And so in reality, if we think that we have advanced by moving beyond the Ten Commandments, in fact, we've only gone back into the darkness. It is only when we yeah. hold on to what God says that we actually see things truly. Now, into verse 9, the next synonym that we get is, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, of the, the various things that David uses to describe the Word of God in this section, I find this one to be the most unique. 
it's, you know, how is, how is the fear of the Lord, how does that describe the word of the Lord? Yeah, I've been puzzling on that one for a while. I think, you know, there's a passage in the book of Jonah where Jonah is asleep in the hold of the ship while everybody else is running themselves ragged trying to save the ship from foundering. And the captain and the guys come down and wake him up and wake up and give us a hand here. What in the world are you doing sleeping when all this stuff is going on? And, uh, and Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he tells them, listen, if you want to have the storm be over with, throw me overboard uh, and everything will be fine for you. But anyway, it's curious that he says, he describes himself by saying, I fear the Lord, which to our ears sounds funny. But uh, what he's saying is, I am a worshiper of Jehovah, the Lord God. I am a worshiper of the Lord, and therefore, and the, the worship of God is given by divine revelation. You know, the way Israel worshiped God was not that they got a committee together and invented a, an order of worship. No, they worshiped God the way God had told them that he is to be worshiped. And so in the word of God, there also is that the, 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 the fear of God or the worship of God is revealed in Scripture. Just like we said at the beginning of the show, when we said that the Psalms are God's word to us, but they are also our words to God, because true worship involves saying back to God what he has said to us. And so I, th I think maybe that gets us a little closer to how the fear of the Lord there connects to all these other passages about God's word. I don't know. Does that sound too yeah. I, I think that's helpful. I mean, I think yeah, the, the way that it, it functions in teaching us the fear of the Lord makes it a, a proper use of, I mean, the way that it stands in here. So I think, I think in your connection to Jonah, I think, is he's a God-fearer or a Lord-fearer, I think that's helpful too. So with mm -hmm. that in mind then, what do we learn about the fear of the Lord? How is it clean and enduring forever? All right, well, since, since our worship of God comes from his word to us and goes back to him. Therefore, the worship that we offer to him in his name and in accordance with his word is a clean worship. It is not heathen worship. It is not man-centered worship. It is not, it is not works righteousness oriented, but it is a clean thing that, that endures forever. Then take us into the last part of verse 9. This is where this list of parallel ends for this section. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, yeah, the, the word there is mishpat in Hebrew, mishpat. And, and what that word means is uh, it means judgment or it means decision. You know, when you go to court, and you stand before the judge, you are looking for a decision to be made. And that decision you are hoping will be one that vindicates you. And so 
the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God is the judge, and he does not judge falsely. And he has given us his only begotten Son, so that we may stand in the judgment by faith in him. And therefore, we, we not only receive in the proclamation of the gospel a not guilty verdict, uh, even now, we know that we are acquitted, but that stands also on the day of judgment, that when we stand before him, he will not scowl upon us and reject us, but he will invite us to enter into the joy of the Lord in the kingdom prepared from the foundations of the world. So God has made a favorable judgment about us. His judgments are true and righteous all together, and they are gracious. Now, with all of that in place about what the word of the Lord is, what it does, verses 10 and 11 serve to wrap up, to build on what David has said so far about how these words of God are, be, are to be desired, how valuable they are, and, and also what they do. Take us into the way this section starts to wrap up in verses 10 and 11. All right, so in verse 10, he says, they're more desirable than gold, right? Than much fine gold. So God's word is, if you have God's word, whatever gold you have, that may be fine, but you have something far more valuable than gold <laughs> when you have God's word. And then he also says, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So he, he, he thinks about the most tasty thing that he can think of, and that tasty thing is not yet as tasty as God's word is. It's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And then he says something, and you can see it transition thinking in his, in, in his uh, attitude here. He goes, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. Now, he doesn't elaborate on this. You know, he's saying all these wonderful things, wonderful things, wonderful things. And then all of a sudden he says, moreover, by them your servant is warned. And he doesn't say anything more about that. And he says, in keeping them, there is great reward. But suddenly he begins to realize, like any, any Christian does when we think about the law, is that, yes, that's what I should be doing, and that's the way it ought to be in my life. But I, sadly, am a sinner. And that kind of takes us from this celebration of God's revelation down into a kind of a confession of sins uh, in the closing. Yeah, I mean, just like there was nothing hidden from the heat of the sun in the first part of the psalm, so now by these words of God we are warned, they bring us to confession. So talk about how David begins to transition into that confession in verses 12 and 13. All right, so, so after saying that your servant is warned by God's word and that in keeping them is great reward, he gets that check in his spirit from the word keeping because we all know that though we would love to, we do not always keep God's word as we should. And so he, he jumps right in and he goes, who can understand his errors? You know, in, in other words, we are so sinful that very often we are sinning without even realizing that we're sinning. 
And then when somebody points out to us that what we're doing is sinful, we are surprised, right? And so he says, who can understand his error? Our sinfulness is greater than we can, can fathom. And then he says, quickly, he says, cleanse me from secret faults. Cleanse me from those sins that I'm not even aware of, those sins that are hidden so far deep down in my heart that I don't even think about them. Cleanse me from all of those. And, you know, when we, when we say the confession of sins, particularly in the divine service, we, we want to be asking God to forgive all of our sins, the sins that we know and the sins that we don't know, because we are assured in the gospel that his grace is greater than our sin. Yeah, what, what about the matter of presumptuous sins that he prays for deliverance from in verse 13? Mm -hmm. So he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And I think that presumptuous sins has to do not with the not with the so-called accidental slip-ups that we make every day, right. but those kinds of sins that we commit intentionally on purpose. That is, we know that they're wrong, we know that we shouldn't do them, but we do them anyway. And therefore, we are not only acting sinfully, but we are acting presumptuously because we are maybe expecting God to be gracious to us anyway and to give us a pass. We are, we are thinking of God in a presumptuous manner. And uh, so a presumptuous sin is a sin that is done intentionally in rebellion against what we know to be true. Right. And so David very strongly prays to the Lord, keep me away from those. Don't let them have dominion over me. Because that kind of dominion of that sort of sin can quickly harden our hearts. We can harden our hearts in terrible ways. And so David prays against that so that he would not go that direction, but rather be led instead by the law of the Lord. And he says, in this he would be blameless and innocent of great transgression. It seems that that's very much connected to the forgiveness for which he's prayed already in this psalm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he... he uh... Don't let these things have dominion over me. And then in that help that you give me, in that rescue that you give me, then I shall be blameless, right? And I shall be innocent of the great transgression. So first he talks about God keeping me back from presumptuous sins. Do not let them have dominion over me. And then the answer to that prayer is, then I have uh, blamelessness, then I will be innocent of the great transgression. Now the psalm concludes in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This has been a, a prayer of mine that I've often used silently prior to preaching sermons and, and worship each week. I've known many pastors who've done that, maybe even out loud with their congregation, using this as a prayer prior to hearing the word of God, maybe uh, going back to where we started, the liturgical use of a, a psalm like this. We've got about two minutes here, Pastor Turgeson. Help us to reflect on this final verse. Help us to be able to use this as a prayer for by itself, but also in the, in the context of Psalm 19. So, 
what we have here is that David, David kind of becomes alarmed towards the end of the psalm, and then he casts his burden upon the Lord, and he is once again assured of God's mercy and grace. And then he concludes his, uh, his psalm with this kind of penitent, humble, yet thankful attitude. He is, he is thankful to, to have the Lord's ear, as it were. And he is thankful for what God has given him and what he has been able to meditate upon. And so he prays in humility, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Right? In other words, uh, that my words and my thoughts and my meditations would not be vain, would not be useless, would not be counterproductive or foolish, but that everything that I think and say would be acceptable in your sight, because you are, you the Lord, are my strength, you are my Redeemer. Right, so here he ends on this wonderful note that we always have to bear in mind as Christian believers baptized in the name of the Lord, that God is our strength, God is our Redeemer. We therefore are helped and we are saved, we are redeemed in Christ. And so what our meditations can be is all that we give thanks for in the gospel. Pastor William Turgeson is the pastor at the, the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 19. Pastor Turgeson, thanks for being our guest today. Good to be with you. God's word is perfect, complete, right, clean, true, doing so much for us, bringing to a knowledge of our sins, but even more than that, helping us to see our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we are made acceptable, and in him the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts go before the Lord, who is our rock and our Redeemer. Thanks be to God. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 19, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.